Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and thought leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. Welcome, I'm Steve LeBeau with Synapse Think Tank of the Air, and we have a lot to think about today. We have uh, three guests with excellent titles and even uh, matching initials. We have uh, Sean Pierce, and take a deep breath so I can get all of our title out, Director of Economic Development and Inclusion Policy for the Mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry. Mm, thank you for that having right? me. That's okay, right. Sean. And Miss Shannon Paul, one of my great heroes from, from early in my childhood. <laughs> Uh, a comedian, a speaker, and a social instigator. Hi. Hi. <laughs> We're going to be instigating in just a minute. Yes, I'm glad. Everybody should. So. Everybody should. That's right. Join join the crowd. And then Elena Imaretska, the Chief Innovation Officer at Brave New Workshops Creative Outreach. Wonderful to be here. Well, did you write, get to make up your own title? Yes, of, of course. <laughs> it right. sounds important. Everyone over there, they just improvise everything. Right? <laughs> Almost everything, yeah. Okay, well, it's funny. We have two people from the comedy sector and one from the mayor's office, so I guess, <laughs> Sean, you're kind of comic relief. Uh, apparently. apparently. <laughs> we'll see. So, so now, did this you make up your title? Did I you didn't really it? make up my title. We, oh. we had some conversation about what works when you're trying to move the private sector into a field that maybe they're not used to. So they had a committee do it. No, no, a committee of a few. Okay, <laughs> okay well, start off, strategy. start off. Tell me how you got where you are. How did you get to be such a big political operative? Well, I think of myself as, as team support, although people tell me not to say that. Um, I'm really from a community, a city where you don't get to choose politics. It's essential for our survival. Mm. So I like to say I was born into this. I grew up in a family that was very well um knowledgeable i should say about what was happening in the world and in the know in, in the know for sure um, but also strategy strategy they were a team of strategists oh um so that's that's my blood my bloodline so and then when did uh, uh jacob call i think it was october and november <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's a it's a pleasure to get to work with him he's one of the few council members that i didn't spend a lot of time with in my previous roles and um, really a phenomenal guy, an excellent mayor, and outcome-oriented, which is uh, right along the, the path of work that I like to do. Did you work with different wards before you took this job on? Or? Uh, I was in a, a previous position where I had the um, really the pleasure of trying to coordinate our work in both Minneapolis and St. Paul, Hennepin and Ramsey County, St. Paul Port Authority, both Minneapolis and St. Paul Chamber, and the McKnight Foundation called the Center Cities Competitiveness Initiative. And we were focused on capital investment and job growth and kind of your market challenge areas. Mm -hmm. But 
I would say I've been working with or sometimes against the city at right. any given point over the last 15 or 16 years. Well, I, I work against the city, too. I'm from St. Paul. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. We still love you. Well, <laughs> and, and like I said when I, when I met the mayor, it's, um, George Latimer, former mayor of St. Paul, said, Minneapolis is my favorite suburb. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if you like that too much. And, and, and Shannon... Tell me how you got to be a comedian. Uh, well, you know, when I uh, I grew up in Phoenix and then moved here to the Twin Cities in uh, the mid-90s. And so I was going to college at Metro State and a good friend of mine that I worked with um, there when we still were Norwest Bank before it turned into Wells Fargo. Oh. He and I used to just go to, if I ever write a book, I have to, in the in in the forward, I have to thank Michael Libri because he was my friend and we used to just pal around and we would go to Acme Comedy Company all the time. And just watch comedians. And I had had friends before say, you're funny, you should be a comedian, you're funny, you should do this. And I'm like, I'm just a writer. I tell jokes, you know, to my friends. I make them laugh. I'm not a comedian. And we were at Acme one day, and, and I, was, I did that whole spiel again. I'm like, ah, I'm not funny like that. And I just tell stories. And my friend Michael Libby was the one that said, well, what do you think they do? Why don't you just figure out <laughs> how to make it sound like their jokes? And I was like, and he just articulated it in just the right way. And I was like, okay. And so I went back there and I, you know, I wrote a, uh, I was in a comedy writing class at Metro State. And um, instead a, of writing. You studied this in school. Yeah. And so I was, I was uh, instead of writing what I normally would have done, which was like a one act or, you know, a, a, a short story. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a four minute set. That's about the length that I would need for the class that I was taking. And I wrote it and I ended up performing it at, um, at, you know, in our class and I didn't die. And then I reworked it a little bit and I went to Acme Comedy Company and I signed up for their open mic and I was second on the list and I got up there and I performed. And I was, when I get nervous, I sweat. So I'm sweating, but I didn't die. I didn't die. And I was like, okay. And I came back and I, you know, met some other comedians and got in with a little click and, you know, just one thing led to another and I'm still here. So haven't died every week. No, exactly. And that's really what it feels like. It's like, you know, I've still, I can still do this and I've still managed to figure out how to find joy in it. Cause you know, we, you know, in the comedy community, you have some very talented people, some very funny people, but it is not always full of happy Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. and not always good people. And there is a lot of, uh, maneuvering the water in this industry. So, um, I'm just very fortunate that I've managed to make this into a career and just kind of expand on it and be able to do things in the storytelling community to be able to be a, a speaker and speak on cultural sensitivity and, and talk about issues and to be able to use this platform for other things as well. So I know I'm very fortunate that I get to just kind of pal around and and, and try and use humor to start conversations. A humble instigator. Yes. That's, and that's why I kind of came up with that title because I was like redoing my business cards and trying to de- decide what laundry list of things that I was going to put on this card. And, you know, do you want to put writer? Do you want to put this? And it's like that's really what I do is I go around and I try and encourage people to think about things and to talk to one another and to communicate. And so that's my definition of what a social instigator is is trying to get people to interact with one another because not everybody's good at that and i'm one of those people that thinks everybody is my friend until they prove otherwise okay so, we'll see how it goes yeah, exactly. it's going fine so far here. yes exactly so yeah. elena yeah, that's wonderful. now you came here from bulgaria bulgaria mm-hmm. and of course you landed in comedy too how did that happen? What's your yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. Well, destiny, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in Bulgaria, and um, 
it was pretty turbulent times at the time. We were moving from communism and kind of autocratic uh, leadership and the planned economy to a democracy and a market economy. So, and then what happens? As you can we imagine, have a, an autocrat again. <laughs> yeah. Well. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, Somewhere on that spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe we'll talk about that <laughs> later too. But um, at the time when I was growing up, it was. Uh, hyperinflation and pretty, pretty turbulent. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot of hope for the young people uh, of Bulgaria. And so uh, we were really encouraged to seek other ways. So it was, if you can get out, get out. Right. And wow. um, I was very lucky because I, I earned a scholarship to come study in the U.S. And so at the age of 18, I boarded a plane for the very first time um, and left the country for the very first time and uh, made the trip to Colorado. So I went and did oh. my undergraduate degree at started, Colorado College. Started the top. <laughs> started the top, exactly. Just beautiful, magical place, which, of course, changed my life completely. Um, and then uh, right after that, I went straight to um, grad school, to business school. And while I was there, um, you know, you do a lot of thinking about your career and what you want to do with your life. And I've always loved the arts and always been involved um, with dance and theater, a little bit of theater as well. And um, I started thinking about, okay, how can we fuse arts and business? You know, I'm a big um, proponent of kind of idea of fusion and just learning from different sectors and not reinventing the wheel. Um, and, and like you, um, you know, just what can we learn from each other and, and how can we make things better? And so I did a little bit of research and talked to a lot of people and someone told me about this Little company in Minneapolis. And by the way, I, had, I knew nothing about Minneapolis. Oh, you're still in Colorado. And actually, I was in Arizona then oh, uh, for wow. grad school. And um, the Brave New Workshop, and they were using improvisation to help business professionals be more effective in their jobs. Oh, okay. And I thought that was absolutely uh, brilliant, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so uh, my last uh, semester in school, I invited the Brave New Workshop to come and present at this conference conference was all about innovation and mm. so they did and uh, the grad school I went to um, is uh, very international so 50% international students and when the Brave New Workshop came and they did this phenomenal uh, workshop and I saw how effective it was to actually use improvisational techniques to teach and to have people practice mm-hmm. and think differently and laugh mm-hmm. at the same time I said, okay, that's it. That's what I want to do. And so I contacted the president of the company at the time, and I said, hey, I want to work for you. Yeah. <laughs> so we interviewed over Skype, and um, after graduation, I loaded all my life and belongings in, in, the, in a car and, and drove across the country, and, and here we are. That was 11 years ago. Okay, we're, we're all here together, and I think right. you want me to tie this together, Sean, so I think we need more city support for comedy organizations I see, I and see. comedians. I mean, think if everybody smiles and laughs every day. Right. Wouldn't, couldn't that kind of be the butterfly effect that could change our whole mentality of our city? Well, what I love about comedy and about the arts in general is that there is a truth-telling component, or there at least is an opportunity to tell the truth. And funny enough, Right. That's Mm -hmm. a little bit of of our challenge here in the market in the Twin Cities, in our region overall. We can we play really nicely together, but we're not often honest about the challenges. We're not often honest about 
how hard it is to come to this place and then be told, oh, I'm going to invite you over for dinner, and then 10 years later never actually receive that invitation. Oh, right. you're talking about yeah. Minnesota nice. I'm talking about Minnesota ice. Ice. Because sure. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, from, you know, uh, uh, and Elena, maybe you can and speak to this as well. You know, as someone who moved to uh, to, to Minneapolis and, you know, the, the Twin Cities area, so I didn't from, meet it. From Arizona. From Arizona. And I, I think, you know, and I, and I travel a lot, and I think what's interesting about this particular um, community is that it's organically homogenous because the way that Minnesotans, when they upgrade, they move two miles away from where they grew up. And when they travel, and not all of them, and this is changing, you know, and it's even evolved since I moved here in 96, but a lot of the travel is, uh, it's, it's in, the patterns are, I go up north to the cabin. So you still have a similar circle. So you have your circle that you have in your block, in your neighborhood here in the Twin Cities, and then you have, because you usually travel at the same weekend every year, you hang out in the same area, so you have another circle that's your lake circle or your vacation circle that you do. So when people move to this market... Circle Lake. Right, you know, so, you know, you're you're hanging out in Matamida, you know, you live in Matamida, and then you go up to Nisswa, but you go up and you see the same people in Nisswa every year, too. So I feel like this circle doesn't expand because they don't need to. Well, I think it's even deeper than that. mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm from Chicago, and mm-hmm. where I'm from, we travel together. Right. We enjoy each other. We spend time with our families and friends. We, you know, like to meet new people. The I don't see the the issue in being with your people. Right. I think that's actually what makes our communities really strong. I think the issue is that when we find people who are different, we other them. Right. right? So I'm going to mm-hmm. hang out with my people, but if you don't go to my lake, right, and we're talking right. about a very specific group of Minnesotans, right. so we should also name that. If you didn't go to my school— if your kids don't go to my kids' daycare, then I don't really have time for you. And I think what I kind of noticed was it it if you had the personality, and I don't think that a lot of people do, of I am going to over invite myself into your circle so that you can break in. I don't think that that's, that's human. What we normally do, no, and so it has to be some sort of intentional instigation. Correct. And so if you are not that kind of person, which I don't believe most people organically are, it is very difficult. And it's not that they don't want to make new friends; it's that they don't have to because they have the same friends from high school or sometimes middle school here, and a lot of other regions of the country don't work that way, where you're not as entrenched with the same community from birth to grave as you seem to do here in the Midwest. And I found that really fascinating where I'm like, your best friend is still your friend from, from kindergarten. Yeah, right. And that's know, interesting. You hear a lot of that. that. And I've worked there for 30 years. Right. And I think that's <laughs> fascinating. And I just was not accustomed to that until I moved here. And after I was like, I'm like, Oh, that's why they seem. But it's, so. you know, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So my part of my background is I've done economic um, and community development in this country and in others for mm-hmm. probably about 15, 16 years right now. And what I've found is that that characteristic of having a tightly knit, a tightly woven um, community is very, very common in the best places. I don't I don't see that as our mm-hmm. fundamental right. Challenge. So even when I lived in New York, there were people who, you know, they they went to school together, they raised their families together, but they weren't afraid Mm -hmm. of venturing outside of what they knew to be true. They weren't threatened. Difference between open networks and closed networks. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And if we can have a conversation where we disagree, but I can respect where you're coming from, even if I think it's fatally flawed, right? Right. But I can understand how you can get to that position. Then I think we can have a different conversation 
about creating a life that welcomes and affirms all of us without accepting ridiculousness. Right? Like, hateful things. Right. I'm not really trying to understand that. No. Right. Well, Elena, did you fit well into uh, the Minnesota culture? You know, I... I was very fortunate, I think, because I do have that personality, which totally overinvites myself. Yeah. And I, you keep smiling. I just, I've noticed that about. Yeah. It. Yes. Yes. I mean, I am very interested in people, and I think people are pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And so I approach every interaction with, "I'm curious about you. I want to learn." And then also, I'm not afraid to actually invite people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I'm not afraid to make that first step. And I mm-hmm. think oftentimes that's. Um, a barrier, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, and I've, but I, I, I am intentional about, um, you know, making sure that I'm part of networks and that I'm, you know, meeting people and I'm, um, you know, making that that effort. Now, so, are you, are your friends native Minnesotans or are your friends people that have moved here? Yeah, it's both. It's both. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Um, people who don't have a network here are far more likely to want to meet and connect and make new friends. That makes total sense. Um, but I would say that even the native Minnesotans that I'm, I'm friends with are people who are open-minded yes. and who mm-hmm. are yes. curious and interested. And honestly, the people who are not, I'm not that maybe interested in either. <laughs> I mean, well, you know. That, that yeah. keeps them closed. I mean, that's, you know, Synapse, part of what we do is, is focus on this. We call it the friendship gap. Right. And I found some statistics from research done in 2014 on the racial analysis of social networks. The average white person knows one black person. I think they know one of every, they know one Asian, <laughs> one Latino. <laughs> you know. a, and then um, the average black person knows eight white people, but they don't know any Asians. In the Midwest, eighty-two percent of whites only know whites. Mm, okay. And then I think for African Americans, it's like sixty-five percent. All their friends are African American. And then it's lower for, for the other groups. We're counting but, Chicago but, in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there aren't the Chicagoans. Right. But anyway, so so it's um, and then we've had events. We ha- had an event recently on on the friendship gap, and a woman from Ghana said, you know, when they try to get the different African nation, you know, immigrants together, you go in there together, but then the Ghanans hang out with the Ghanans, the Nigerians yeah. hang out with the Nigerians. So there's that organic thing. So you need to do something to, to get them to mix. Right. You need a mixer. You do, yeah. When I first arrived in the States and, um, you know, I was at a small campus, pretty small campus, pretty small school. And so we had international students, but it wasn't a large uh, population. So what that's exactly what happens. If you have a larger population of international students, you have the Chinese students hanging out with the Chinese students, the Germans with the Germans, the Spaniards with the, and the Indians. But we actually were, because we're so small, we're kind of from all over. And that made it such a tremendous experience because what I learned was, number one, culture totally matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yes. how, where you grew up, how you grew up, that definitely yes. uh, informs how you see the world. But that's amazing and interesting. And, um, and, and creates a really, you know, back to your point, Sean, interesting conversations, interesting discussions, when there is also that trust and that common experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I, um, I, I feel good. We've, yeah. we've gone this far together. Here. <laughs> yes, com- so much trust. Moment. So much trust here. <laughs> we're, we're here with uh, talking, well, that was just now, Elena Imaretska from Bulgaria. Good job. Good <laughs> job, Steve. All those words. And we also have uh, Miss Shannon Paul and uh, Sean Pierce from the mayor's office. Is the mayor going to listen to this? 
I have no idea. I'll <laughs> invite him to. Okay, well, you already said in the first segment how great he is. He's really great. Maybe he won't get to the next segment. <laughs> Tell us what you really want. We'll be back right after this. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back, Synapse Think Tank of the Air. And boy, you know, I was thinking, what's the difference between race and culture anyway? So, I mean, and, and Sean, you were going to bring up a point that before we went to break, uh, or while we were in break, about bringing up the differentiating factor between culture and race. Because we do, because culture, cultural circles are things that are based on more than just race. So it can be, right. you know, cultures mm-hmm. uh, evolve and change over time. Uh, they um, distort, they change, and lots of these things are based on different histories and a commonality. But a lot of times we jump to thinking that culture is based upon what you can see from a visual or a physical standpoint, and we only go to that, when a lot of things are based upon whatever might be a different commonality. And so when I'm uh, speaking on cultural sensitivity, I try and encourage people to go, what cultural circle uh, is core to you? Like, if you were going to get to know me, a thing that would be good to know about Miss Shannon is that I am a giant geek. I am one of those card-carrying geeks. When you hear about those women that go to sci-fi conventions, dress up, read too many comic books. Right, that's me. <laughs> We've got so, geeks. Right, yes, and so <laughs> knowing that is something that if you look at Sean and I, maybe you wouldn't jump to that particular conclusion mm-hmm. if you only judge us based on physical right. and visual characteristics. Right. But knowing that about us would ease the conversation because geeks have a language. There is a cultural language that we have. I noticed so you were <laughs> touching your elbows to each other. But. Yeah, kind of thing, because we can like bond about <laughs> those so things. True. And there is a different, like, you know, you know, and once you know that, like now we that we know that about each other, you could feel almost a barrier drop mm-hmm. between the two of us. I'm thinking about how I should have invited you to go to WakandaCon. Oh, gosh. And I just have an outfit I was considering going as Wakandan royalty for Halloween because uh, I do, do I do encourage people because we are getting ready to go into Halloween. I don't like people to appropriate characters, but I do think that you can show homage to a world. So if you have a child that's really into Moana, there are ways that you can mm-hmm. appropriately have them think this is a great character. If you have, you know, friends that are really into Black Panther, Mm -hmm. because we brought up Wakanda, Wakanda forever. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) There are ways that you can be part of that world and show homage to it without appropriating Mm -hmm. that culture and that character. And I think that there are fun ways to do it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan, you know, I I like Harry Potter, and I have a a Professor McGonagall hat. I wouldn't dress as Professor McGonagall, (laughs) but I would call myself a Hogwarts wizard, (laughs) and I would have a wand, and I think that there are ways that we can still go, mm-hmm. this is how we show this and how we go, yeah, it's neat. I do think people should go, I think Black Panther is a great character, but and it's a great love letter to Afrofuturism and all of this amazingness. And so I want it to be available for everyone. And so, but I also don't want, you know, my mm-hmm. Caucasian friends dressed up in blackface because they think Please it's okay because it. they want to be. Do it. No, that so, would be cultural appropriate. Right. And that, I, that might be some other things. Right. right. And, but, <laughs> but there are ways that you can go, but no, I get it. And here's how I would transfer this character Absolutely. and I can show why it's neat. And I want that to happen. Absolutely. You know, well, I don't want it to be only for us bias when we have this amazing well, property out there. On, on the opposite end of it, there are people that only see color and like I'm thinking of a corporate office. Mm-hmm. We need diversity. Okay, let's get a person that, you know, a black person, an Asian person, you know, go down that line. But then we want them to think like us. Right. So then you have the opposite. You have, 
you know, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, you don't have the, the diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. But I, and I don't want people to say they don't see color either because I feel like that devalues that, you right. know, and, and it devalues that there is a differentiating factor in all of our stories. Um, so you kind of need to be able to see everything. And then, but then not jump to the conclusion that just because we've seen physically or visually similar that we have the same story and right, not still right. getting back to which was the hard part and part of what, you know, we started in the first segment is that's the difficult part is getting to know people on an individual basis. Right. And as human beings. Sit down well, and I think talk. it comes, mm-hmm. I think it comes down to some cultural agility. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of make this um, comparison that there are white people. Mm-hmm. And then there are people of European heritage, mm-hmm. and then there are people who are light skin, mm-hmm. like somewhere on that spectrum. And whiteness is a very particular culture, right? Mm-hmm. And some of it is about not not having a culture anymore, right? I think there's a lot of white people jealous of, of everybody. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and that's how appropriation starts when you have this longing for connection. Do, do, I, excuse me, do you do you get out of this, Elena? Because you're you're not a white American, so Bulgarians they have a culture, don't they? Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, but I I think every, well, we all have yeah, a culture. Everyone well, has a culture. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. No, this is really interesting um, discussion for me because you know I'm an immigrant, right? But I think I'm treated um, differently than other immigrants because I'm white, because I have certain education, because I came to study. You know, so so that's a very interesting mm-hmm. and important factor mm-hmm. to consider. But this whole question of whiteness, it's, it's very interesting, again, because I have a friend who is from Turkey. She's an Im- immigrant as well, and she's Caucasian, but she doesn't cons- consider herself white. Right. It, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. This is very common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amongst yeah. immigrants who get classified or choose yeah. to classify as white. So, yeah. so light-skinned, but, but, well, not, but, 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 but th- a, so the white has a cultural component to it. Well, let, but let's go deeper here. Right? Okay. So I always say, you know, people go, oh, we need to have a black person at the table that's great mm-hmm. let's not pretend that i have the same perspective as a black person who is born and raised in the united states who believes that capitalism will save us mm-hmm. because i don't share that perspective right i wouldn't consider myself a part of the black elite the culture that i'm from the culture of my family the culture of my community is one that prioritizes family and not titles because titles don't change and haven't changed the conditions of black people, many who are, are many of whom are descendants of slave slaves in this country. So there's there's a unique culture within our racial categories. Where it gets tricky is when um, I think people who get to exercise and live amongst white privilege start exercising culture as a way of claiming things like reverse discrimination or. Or saying things like, oh, but I have this experience, too. It's like, no, you don't. I think what you're saying, Elena, right, of, of having that that privilege that is that is given to you before people even get to know you, that's real, mm-hmm. right? So this, this thing that happens um, that can be very simple of getting on a bus and a bus driver responding to each of us differently, that isn't really a cultural response. That's a racialized response, right? And we're all on the bus, so there, there, there's even that assumption around class or around access. But even within, within perceived um, similar categories, we're treated differently. So, so there's that reality. But then I think there is the, the possibility that if people who identified as white actually learned their heritage, then we would be in a much better place. 
because it gives us a linkage to understand the types of culture that we grew up in. So I, being from the south side of Chicago, I know what it means to be black in the United States. Right. right. I know what it means that my mother is of the age and is a part of the group of people who had dogs let loose on them and water hoses turned on to mm-hmm. on them in the street. And by the way, that's actually happened in our lifetimes. Right. Right. I know what it means to still work with the kids who had to deal with nooses being hung from the trees or who are being kicked out of schools or six year olds in our very own city and in our very own region who are being told that they're going to be deported because they're immigrants. Like I know with black immigrants, by the way, because we also talk about immigration as though it's like solely one group. Right. Like I know what that means. But that is a very different racialized reality than the culture that I grew up in, where the aldermans, the teachers, the principals, the firefighters, the people at the grocery store and everywhere else were actually black. And so I have the opportunity to understand that while we might be geeks, that's a that's a unique subculture right. within our racialized experience and in our, our location of origin mm-hmm. speaks differently. So my my experience, I always kind of say Minnesota is like a different Midwest. I right. don't know what happens when you cross Milwaukee, but it's a whole other place. And since Sean grew up in the Midwest and in Chicago, I grew up in South South you know in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. So my right. background of growing up in Arizona, which has kind of like closer to a southern mentality without the cool accent and um and and just fried chicken yeah and and i grew up in a neighborhood you know and i tell people like you know and 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 so much of what i say is of course like you know comes from a can i how can i make light of this i say i'm um hood i'm not ghetto you know kind of thing so i didn't grow up in a great neighborhood and i didn't but my mother was very uh, conscious of the here is how you will be educated and here is how you will speak and here is how you would be. And my mother got a job at a private Christian grade school. So my sisters and I would go there mm. um, and it wasn't the the school in our neighborhood. And so she worked to say that we will not only be this particular neighborhood that we went in. You know, but that doesn't change the fact that my experience wasn't, you know, I remember growing up and being on public assistance and when we were, you know, you know, and then going from this small Christian grade school to an inner city high school and then always feeling like a lot of my life lessons were, well, I'm not black enough for the the black kids and I'm clearly not white. Mm. So thank gosh, I'm a geek. I'm just going to hang out with the geeks over here anyway. So I was able to find my circle and figure out that I was okay. Culture that right, exactly. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, I was able to fig- figure out, okay, well, where where can I find people that are most like-minded to me? And it ended up being something different than, again, the visual or the physical. But the storyline still remains in when I'm making my differenti- my, my thought patterns there's I don't distance from the fact that I happen to be a black female American, you know, and so a lot of my foundational story and, you know, starts there. And so when I make it may filter through additional pots as I'm going, but a lot of my perspective still comes from, no, you know, uh, this is I might be, you know, I, I get I, I and Sean, maybe you get this. Too, I get the the nice version of, well, you're OK because you're one of the good ones. I get the nice version oh, of that right. where. Don't worry. I'm glad you get the nice version. Yeah, I get the, I get the, I get the, well, you're in media, so you'll always be fine. You'll have this. And I'm like, well, we don't live in that world. We don't live in any world where everybody, where anybody is overtly uh, safe or precious or not looked at like you're still one of the others when that thing happens. But that's such an important concept because there is the reality of exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a part of what happens within the communities of people of color certainly within a black community where so many of us have been in this country and have been the only black people in a room, right? right? So there's that exception. 
you know, to the mm-hmm. rule. And then people start to think that, oh, if I get this title, if I get a promotion, if I get this access, then I'm somehow better. And I like to tell, I tell my colleagues in the office and I, I tell people in general, I don't care what my title is or how much I make if I don't do something to make the world a better place and to make my people and my community stronger and better than I will have failed. Right. Right. Like there's there. We don't get ahead when we as individuals, no matter your race or your or your um, ethnicity or your culture as individuals, we simply are losing by being so individualistic. Yeah. And well, I do I, occasionally yeah, feel as though it's almost held against the group. I feel like the prevailing culture, if they see one of us that is doing well, then they go, well, see, that one's fine. So I no longer have to do anything else. I don't have to take action. I don't have to feel bad. And then we're washed away. And I'll use up an example. You guys may not have seen this yet, but I just had uh, the opportunity to see the film The Green Book, which is coming out. So it's Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali, who I enjoy. And um, I I, I, I appreciate uh, Mahershala Ali. I appreciate the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that it back to because I enjoy starting conversations. And I think that this movie will do uh, a wealth of starting conversation. But I happened to be in a screening where they had a panel afterwards. And the mm-hmm. part where I was kind of I was sitting there and I happened to be next to, you know, one of my African-American friends, you know, then. So we were kind of like poking each other because we liked 90 percent of the movie. But then it Disney-fied racism and what was going on in the South and the way that they have the story because everything is resolved by Christmas. Mm. Um, And and I took... And here's your candy. And that's where... And I don't think every movie needs to be 12 years of slate. Everything doesn't have to punch you in the gut. But Mm -hmm. I don't think that it should be... And and this is where I really was kind of like, ah... Because during the the discussion, there were people that were talking to the director and I, director, and again, remind I do think that it is a good movie, and it's you know if it is used to start a conversation. But there there were people who were going, I felt so uplifted, and I felt mm-hmm. I'm so glad you made this movie, and you you know, and and my questions are, well, that's fine, but I do think that we do have some. Uh, additional change that needs to happen. And if people feel better already, (laughs) I don't think that that's enough. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like, well, I don't want people to be able to come out of this film feeling, you know, okay, everything was fine because I saw that movie. Part of of the problem of of movies is that that becomes your experience. I mean, Mm -hmm. how many times have you heard someone in a, a terrific situation where there was a tornado or something fierce and they say it was like a, in a movie. Right. Like I was in a movie, as if that's <laughs> higher than reality. But it's a substitute for reality for people that don't have any other experience. If you've never, if you don't have any black friends, your image of black people is what you see in the movie. Right. So Here's the thing, Steve. Yeah. I believe that race is a cover for something much deeper. And there are too many people in this state who will say they've never seen black people to, to like be able to live there. Right. It just doesn't add up. Never seen that, it. You mean like colorblind or just not no. seen? Let me tell you, I, I, I think it's such a lie. I don't even bother to ask them what they mean when they say it. because <laughs> It's irrelevant. It's factually not true. You this either, is a you either bo- never watched TV, never looked at a magazine or you've completely isolated yourself. This metropolitan like, okay. statistical area does not lend, lend to that answer. And that right. Response. It, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. But I think that the, the underlying piece um, that 
perhaps the dominant system is just beyond race doesn't want us to get at is what's happening around class, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, and that's part of the, the bigger theory of the, the, the oppressive system. Absolutely. And then race is a tool to divide and conquer. Absolutely. Right. So the commonality amongst all of all three of us, all four of us, is that at some point the places that we've been, if not now, have been through a class-based upheaval. Mm-hmm. And in that movie... And in Wakanda, well, I mean Black Panther, but I call it Wakanda, <laughs> right? Your home, home, yeah. the homeland. Well, you know, it's somebody's homeland. Right. I love the the technological aspects of it, but what we saw in the film, um, and if you remember the film Crash from back in the day, it was not really back in the day, but you know, mm-hmm. this was back in your say, day, back in somebody's day. <laughs> um, what we saw is a, a grappling of a clash of cultures, really based in class based differences. And then we saw actually the people, almost always, the people of the ruling class, the owning class, actually are always the saviors. Right. There's, now, sometimes no, they happen to follow a racial line. There's a movie. Right. Um, Elena. Yes. Do, what do you think? I mean, you didn't have, I assume uh, it was fairly homogenous in Bulgaria. Yeah, fairly homogenous. And so that's why for me it's been a really interesting journey to come here and learn about all of this. And to be honest with you, I'm still learning and I feel very, very lost at times. I mean, honestly, even being here with you, having these conversations, I'm just listening and I just want to know what's going on because it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. It is so complicated. Mm -hmm. And it's uncomfortable to be in that ambiguous place where you don't really know what's going on. And I think that's why people don't want to have the conversations. Right. Because it's, as humans, we don't, we don't want to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? But we have to be. Because to a point that Sean was making, we all have to have the mindset of how do we make things better? How can we serve? How can we solve for the so many challenges that we have, not only in this community, but in this country, in the world? I mean, if, if we don't think of ourselves as problem solvers, as innovators, as instigators, as mm-hmm. connectors, and as learners... You know, there's no hope, <laughs> right? right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a huge mindset shift that has to happen for everyone. Um, and you you all clearly have that, but it has to be everybody, Absolutely. everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, I think your, your experience and, um, and that you started to describe of being, and then being in and then leaving Bulgaria, mm-hmm. I mean, even the way you started to talk about what was happening there, I immediately flashed back to East St. Louis, and the schools that have been flooded with sewage since forever. Mm-hmm. The Detroit scenario with them not getting water and what that meant, right? Alabama and people living with septic systems that are backing up to their homes, and there's no sense of care and, like, the economic collapse that is taking place in all of those. And so it's like I think that, again, we're, we, we get distracted by race, and now we need to triage race because it's mm-hmm. been so embedded in our policies yeah. and practices but on a personal level, to know and experience what it was like to be in a home that was being ripped from you based on economics yeah. and based off of a decision that a majority of the people didn't yeah. matter, is that's like that is the experience of many, many people in this country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's all about economics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do believe that it's all about always all about economics. So we have to address that. You know, it was interesting. So my husband is from Danish descent. And so we went to Denmark, you know, a few years back. And 
um, we talked about that, you know. So what, you know, what what do the Danes consider being the principles of their culture? And one of the things which has been for many, many years, hundreds of years, is that um, we're only as good as the people who are sort of last, you know. Mm-hmm, so we absolutely. have to take care of everyone for us all to prosper. And I think that it's not necessarily the case people think in this country because of certain myths mm-hmm. um, that that people believe, that honestly I believed, you know, mm-hmm. coming here mm-hmm. and, and having a view of what the U.S. is or was mm-hmm. uh, and now being here for 11 years, you know, I start to, to see things differently. Do you feel mm-hmm. comfortable saying what some of those are? Some of those beliefs that either you heard or that you had? Yeah, the big one is the, you know, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge one because I don't think that's the truth. Mm. You know, I think there is a lot of uh, need for people to be innovative and driven and motivated, etc. But the truth is we have only a certain amount of, of energy, number one. And we can only think about the things that are around us who we are surrounded by, the realities that we're surrounded by, that Absolutely. really affects how we think. So sometimes you can't even think of a different solution because of what you are. And then there are some systemic things. Well, we'll, you know? we'll think of a so. solution when we come back because we have, boy, talk about a think tank. <laughs> <laughs> it's this thick. You know, I thought we'd be talking com- comedy and all that stuff. We're talking reality. <laughs> well, you know, we'll sometimes be, reality can be Yeah, you can't it. have comedy without reality. <laughs> okay, right? we'll be back to reality right after this. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. I'm Steve LeBeau, and we have uh, Sean Pierce from the mayor's office and uh, someone that's grabbing uh, political realities by with both hands. <laughs> and pr- who knows what else? Hands and some ropes and look. Hands and ropes, whatever, whatever you can grab. <laughs> and we have Miss Shannon Paul, who, um, boy, who has, who makes her living making people laugh, but yes. but also by reaching into their gut, yeah, <laughs> kind of. Well, take a look at this. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, that's what I do as a speaker is, and I do talk on cultural sensitivity. And I'm not a professor. I'm a person who's had a b- number of different jobs and navigated, you know, the professional world and now, you know, travel a lot with comedy. And so I spent a lot of time studying human beings. And right, because that's uh, the most funny thing of all. Yeah. And I mean, in that, and, and I, tragic. If, if I, yeah, <laughs> but that's the point is balancing those things. And so when I am doing, when I'm speaking on cultural sensitivity, I do speak on it also from a position of humor and trying to uh, use that as inroads to start this conversation. So if you can't take my velvet glove, then somebody needs to slap you with a hammer. You know, that's well, just reality. Humor has long <laughs> been the secret weapon because you can say anything with humor and get it through. But if you say it straight or, or you know, even with a, a, a kind of a negative tone, then it's harder to accept. Right. And we're also here with Elena... Maretska, who works in the field of humor, and I think you must pick up some of that over at the Brave New Workshop. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way we use laughter is actually as a way to build trust and to help people become more comfortable being uncomfortable. So people need to laugh together. They mm-hmm. do need to laugh together, exactly, because improv is funny not because there are some jokes or because it's crafted, but it's because it's people who are imperfect creating something out of nothing together. And they actually are collaborating and they're building on each other's ideas and they create something unexpected. And it's something that's 
unique and it happens just in that space and just in that room. You can and see that's it what's happen. special about it. Yeah, and that's what's special about it. And what we do actually in our work is we help people who are not improvisers, who are not performers, who are actually uh, professionals, very successful people. Um, we help them become more vulnerable and try something that they've never tried before together. It changes your mind. It does change your mm -hmm. mind and it helps you think differently and it helps you connect with people and it helps you practice, again, practice being uncomfortable and still moving forward. And that's mm. perhaps the most important thing that we should teach everyone how to do. Mm. I learned how to be uncomfortable because I got married. <laughs> yes. See, yes. But I got married to a Japanese woman who is from Japan and then all of a sudden came here and, and, and went to school in Chicago and, and said, all of a sudden I was a minority. Mm -hmm. What is this? And Absolutely. so then she, she opened her eyes to that. And then since we've been married, she's opened my eyes because white people are so oblivious because they don't get to see these things, a, a lot of things. So we'll watch TV and she'll say, that's racist. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say, I don't get it. I don't think it's racist. A half hour later, it's like, oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. So now I'm up to only three minutes. I can spot it. You know, I, <laughs> the, the conversations are shorter. But there are instances with, uh, with her where I've run point blank into terrible racism that I've seen because I'm white, mm -hmm. how people are giving her resistance, but then when, when I walk in, it changes totally. Absolutely. Right. So um, th I think those experiences are very valuable. Most people don't get to have them, most white people. Yeah, and that's why traveling is so important and yeah. just getting out of you know, an environment that's comfortable and safe because that's when you start seeing things. That's when your mind opens. And that's when it becomes fun, honestly. Right. Uh, you know, it was really Maybe they can, go to, they can right. go to Wakanda. <laughs> I wish we could yes. go to Wakanda. Take me, please. <laughs> I think I, I think I would struggle in Wakanda. Why? <laughs> I think that I would struggle in Wakanda because there were too many people there who saw people who looked like them struggling and didn't care to actually change it. Fair enough. People in power, right? Who, yeah. who made the decision? They made that decision of isolationism. Right. And but at the end, well, they changed that. Right? Well, but at the end, they they opted for charity. So they didn't okay. really change okay. it, right? Well, so sure. Killmonger well, well, was really proposing Sean, an overhaul. This mm. is your turf. You you go in there and change it totally, right? You that, this is part of your job. You know that's a that's a huge question, and I, funny enough, I ended up in a conversation about this the other day. I think we have a choice to make. We can work at changing the minds and hearts of people who don't really care, don't get it, and spend all of our energy doing that. That's a that's a small percentage of people. Or we could spend our energy resourcing people, places, and things that get it and have been ignored and shut down. I believe that it is my role to, re to do the latter and where there are systemic barriers to address the systemic barriers. But I'm less concerned with changing something that was never meant, was never meant to actually serve the people into something that now does. Can you give me an example? Well, I can give you several. Because <laughs> all, all that's so abstract. Well, uh, really basic things, the, the way permitting has happened in the country or redlining, right? Mm -hmm. So this, the, the system around housing. I've and talked to, to white people it. that don't know what redlining is. Um, mm, simple version. It's, it's, you yeah. pull out a map of an area <laughs> and you draw a red line around the area that you deem as less valuable you can, if, you, if you're the city of Minneapolis back years ago, then that might be called the Negro slum, mm -hmm. right? 
And then the financial institutions align with that analysis and you underfund and under under resource in that area. It's too risky to make an investment. It's right. not only is it too risky to make an investment, but what you do then is you systematically push all of the people of color or the poor people. In this case, for our city, it was the blacks and the Jews. You push them to that area where now you don't have the infrastructure. You don't have the investment in even the housing stock. You don't get permits for businesses, so people can't legally sustain or have the amenities they are required and are actually prevalent in the rest and of the And these city. were the way that the laws were stated initially, and then we had to break them apart so that— Well, we really know, haven't. Well, technically— so We're still working at it. Huh? Yeah, and there's a good—if they want a, a Cliff's Notes version of what Sean just said, there is an episode of um, Explained— on Netflix and explained. You, you get all your references from movies and TV. Pop culture, a lot, a lot. Pop culture is important, and pop culture and that's a geek thing. Yeah, it, it. But there are there are so many things, and I think that a lot of um, uh, filmmakers uh, and and people who were working on these big budget things and, and things now because they do have um, passions and projects and opinions, and they are now using their platform that too. So you do see the way that these things are happening. So there are a lot of independent films and documentaries mm-hmm. and things that people who we're working on Star Wars and now they're going to do this film about um, the black urban cowboys in Compton uh, in, in Los Angeles and the fact that there was up on his hill there used to be a stable where these people would instead of being gangbangers would keep their horses or you'll mm. hear these stories and explain where they will explain redlining because it was a story that people weren't weren't being told so or instead of, instead of using humor to convey these things they can use art right and well, you so can. And, and art is easier to understand and i think that right now my push for all of our producers and our writers and our creators is to stop just reflecting and actually start changing so if you mm-hmm. take something like redlining so we, if you eliminate the policies and the restrictive covenants that have run with the land and if you do all of that you, you then have to actually deal with the fact that you have businesses who've never gained the capacity to do what an institution that has been around for 100 years has been able to do. You have to deal with the fact that you have families, primarily black and indigenous families, who have never been allowed to own a home. And you have to deal with the fact that you have a brokerage a system, brokerage system that will still allow the homeowners to do, do things like tell a black uh, potential buyer that the home is no longer on the market and therefore they don't need to look. And then as soon as they leave, it's back on the market. So we could spend all of our time trying to change that. And from a policy standpoint, it makes a lot of sense too. But I don't think that it makes sense to go and try to campaign people and change their minds. Just change the law. Right. Just so, so you're change for changing it. the law rather than changing people's minds. I think that and you then, start by changing. If people can't, we know the history of this country. We know the history of the country in terms of how it's treated indigenous people. We know the history of the country and how it's treated um, black people. We know the history of the country and how it took land from the Mexicans. How I mean, like we know the flexibility of well, immigration uh, but, policy. But, but I would argue that that we've changed laws and now we're losing them. Like Say, the Voting uh, Rights Act and things, those, some of those are going back. Because we didn't change the law. We made accommodations like the Voting Rights Act. I mean, this we had so many things that had to be renewed by Congress. They weren't changed. They were tweaked. Mm-hmm. They weren't erased. So that's my whole point. They're tweaked off the it shelf. Doesn't, and so, right, it doesn't make sense to tweak something that is, that, is, that is at its base, at its base racist, classist, homophobic, 
or ableist. It does not make sense. Erase it. You have to eliminate it in order to actually build something that is just, which, by the way, we all benefit from. But I think that there is a part of the prevailing culture that likes to continue to do those tweaks because then when you don't remain diligent, then they can roll back those tweaks. tweaks and better. so like and that's the that's that's the trick is they go, OK, and they do it as a pacifying measure. Um, and you we'll go, OK, this you know, and we'll they encourage they encourage you to be reasonable. And then uh, there are so many people on this side that we keep going. Yeah, we know we should be reasonable. We're not going to keep shouting. We're going to be reasonable. Um, but then eventually your reasonable nature is used against you. But here's the deal. You know, is what if, I feel if, like if. if in the United States, if the Japanese, when they were interned, continued to be reasonable, mm -hmm. they eventually would have been slaves. Right. Right. So you so have to not be this, reasonable. Right. And, and I think this thing about well, what's that, legal isn't you, the guy. If the law is bad, you, you have to be unreasonable. Erase that's it. Whole, whole Just point. erase it. Eliminate but, it. But, but getting back to your point, I, I agree that you have to change the laws, but you also have to change the attitudes. Otherwise... They'll be, you know, pulled back. Right? I, think, I think that you do, right. but we we very often prioritize the changing of attitudes, and that takes exponentially longer. So if we look at over a three year time span, the change. Well, if in we have a culture, comedy initiative, right, and get some good movies and TV shows, <laughs> right. Well, well then you have to watch yeah. TV and you have to go to the comedy show, right. <laughs> and and to Elena's point earlier, yeah. right, not everybody has the time, right. So. If I don't have time to go to that comedy show and I don't have time to watch TV or I can't afford television, how am I going to interact with that? What I'm interacting with is the environment around me that's interacting with me. And they so like, you have to change the environment. And they like to have a, a, a safety net that is already something they are accustomed to. Absolutely. So if you sit there and go, if you give them the ability to fall back on an outdated uh, way of thinking and law and go, well, I know that that seems outdated, but it's still there. Or it's too fast. Yeah, exactly. It's it's too everything's too fast. Everything's well, that, too fast. That's the, the fault. You have to just start argument. saying, I want it today, which I know is unreasonable. But if I keep saying, well, okay, I know that yeah. things take time to change and evolve, then you'll continue to have us wait. Yeah. Well, well that, we've been a few hundred years into some of these things. Right. I don't know how much more time And that's the need. point is that you have to create discomfort because mm -hmm. Absolutely. They're, yeah. are, they're too comfortable. Well, and it's a breaking well, open. Elena, why yeah. don't you join yeah. in here? Yeah, I'm really curious um, what you guys think about this. Almost reframing a little bit um, and thinking about how can you talk about and give the stories of the positive outcomes that are possible. Mm -hmm. and so I loved your point about artists and, uh, you know, media folks should actually be creating the vision, not just reflecting, but also creating the vision of what's possible because people are motivated by fear. But when people are fearful, they tend to fight or freeze. Absolutely. So we have to motivate people by vision and by excitement and by positive movement. And that's when things get exciting and that's when things actually truly can change. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big fan of, um, you know, kind of, social enterprises and, um, you know, companies and organizations and businesses that are using the power of business to create change when they think about the impacts of the business and really thinking about all the stakeholders and all the impacts that are happening. And a great um, example of that is the Grameen Bank, which has been, you know, around for so many years mm -hmm. and it does microfinance. So they did the exact opposite of what those financial institutions that you were talking about they actually went to the people who didn't have the resources for collateral, but they lend it not to individuals, but to groups. And they went to their doorstep and they are so successful. They're a successful business. And I saw the founder um, of the Grameen Bank, Muhammad Yunus, speak um, a few years back. And he said, 
there's always a solution and there's always a business model that can be built around any social challenge. Absolutely. And to me, that's so hopeful <laughs> and, and exciting. And, that, and that, I think that's why we have to challenge ourselves to think differently all the time. Is there a different angle? Is there something else we can be doing uh, to solve? Mm-hmm. Well, and the beauty of what they did was that they broke open. So they didn't say, okay, this is what the market says. This is, this is how all the other banks have done it. And I think some of our most innovative firms and innovative moments come from that point where we say, we don't have to be like others in order to be successful. Yes. And that's scary. That can yeah, be scary, right? So again, we're back to, we need to learn how to be uncomfortable, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and actually, that's part of uh, improv. I mean, to be yes. able to jump into the unknown, the void, and have enough confidence. Because your brain has changed, you can innovate. And I think... That's a big problem. I mean, uh, people that can't innovate, cannot change, cannot learn. I think there's your attitudinal problem, right? They're, they're stuck. Right. But I think that we've kind of, when you're talking about how do we get these voices to be more outspoken, I don't think that we always champion, and we should, when people are starting to speak up, we go, okay, as an artist, you're not supposed to have an opinion. You're just supposed to do this. Or how dare you as an actor, how dare you as this have an opinion, you're going to lose all of your fan base. You're going to this. And so we don't encourage people to go, no, stand up and use your platform. And then we have movements like, and I, you know, I, Whenever I see the word self-care, I get crabby because <laughs> because self-care became such a big deal. A right. Because when, self, because when self-care really started to be put to the forefront is when things did start to get uncomfortable and the news made people mad and upset. And instead of going, yes, go out and do something to change and be involved. We said it hurts too much. Maybe you should put a mask on your face and stop reading the news. And, you know, it, you know, and so instead of dealing with these emotions, and that's a very Midwestern thing, too, we go cram them down and feel better. What do I what can I do to immediately feel better and instead of going? No, you should stay involved. And I'm not saying that you should stay up scrolling through news headlines at 2 a.m. in the morning. But if you see something, then maybe you should become involved instead of just going, well, how can I can I put cucumber slices on my face and stop feeling yeah. bad instead yeah. of doing something? That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, I, whenever somebody brings up self-care, I get mad because that means you just <laughs> thickened your bubble instead of, I'm like, um, okay, you I need th- to activate yeah. people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I, I do believe it's a, it's a balance, yes. right? Because there are some of us who don't get to practice self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, was just, I was like, I, were you looking at my phone at the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I hate to interrupt, but uh-oh. we're almost out of time. Mm-hmm. This is such a good conversation. We should probably just you know, take over the, bolt the, the door <laughs> in the studio and just keep talking. But what, what makes me hopeful, I mean, I'd like the variety of people in, in multiple ways. For example, I'm glad there are accountants because I mm-hmm. would never yes. want to do that. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's good to have, have a variety of people. And then to have a variety of people with, with, with some common sense that we're all in this together. Right. And I'm so glad, Sean, you're working on the po- political end because I actually you know worked in government for four years. It made me so cynical. <laughs> I hate, you know, I, I my... my sense of pride in American politics went way down the yeah. more I saw it's but to funny, stick kinda, in there and keep yeah. fighting I love it and I, I kind of joke now people are like oh how's it working for the city and I was like it's easier to work in the city um, <laughs> but it, your leadership does matter your yes. leadership really really matters and without talking about all of the you know different um, mayors or heads of state I've worked with I have to say that Mayor Fry in particular 
um, and his focus on outcomes makes a difference. And he's not malicious. And we have a lot of malicious and and ill-intentioned and self-centered leaders. And when I see whether it's housing or policing and community relations or economic inclusion, which is what I focus on, you know, he really is thinking about the connection. And he is technically knowledgeable. I mean, to someone that doesn't. Well, okay, that know, could be. That's ambiguous. He's technically knowledgeable. I mean, so people people make policies all. Of he's the not. Time. He's knowledgeable I mean, about the technology of it. I mean, people make policies all of the time based off of their feelings. Mm-hmm. Oh. He knows how to bring together the emotion with the reality and mm-hmm. think creatively toward an outcome. Well, that. That's practical. Is that's that improv? Wonderful. That is improv, and actually, it's it's funny. So tonight, I'm leading an improv and design thinking session for the city of Minnetonka. I'm oh. a resident. Oh, I'm yeah. come out I actually, mm-hmm. I actually ran for city council in oh. the spring, and I didn't win, but. I'm staying engaged well, so because that's awesome. my self-care, is staying engaged. The, the political geekness. Of, uh, <laughs> a little bit. Let me know for, for sure. your next campaign. For sure. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It might okay. be coming up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as we're saying goodbye, uh, Shannon, you can be heard elsewhere. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I do host a show on My Talk 107.1. I host a show called The Mom Show where we basically uh, talk, you know, Lots of great information that you may have wanted to Google for your family and you got too busy. So we, we float through that. I and I also have my own podcast. It's called Be Our Geek. So I invite hey. all of you to be on it because we do talk about um, pop culture topics through our geek filters. But then we also have a guest geek on that they geek out about whatever they are passionate okay. about. So it can be a little bit of anything. Well, I don't know if you do etymologies back to our, uh, I could. our Indo-European uh, history. That would be fascinating. My geek, that's my geekness. Okay. See, I see we have three shows already planned. <laughs> Between you three, I'm good. Okay, well, I feel so productive today. (laughs) And uh, let's see. Well, I think I said goodbye to everyone. Elena Imaretska, you'll probably be back in politics soon. And uh, uh, Shannon and and Sean, it's so great to have you on here. Thank you. And we'll we'll have to get back together again because I think there's a chemistry here. (laughs) I think so. So, I want to be your best friend. Oh, perfect. Yes, Okay, we're making friends today. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Synapse Think Tank of the Air, and thanks to Dan Colhane and Dan Cook for making sure it it gets uh, on the the air and and posted on the website. And also WCCO is our media partner co-producing this program. I'm Steve LeBeau. We'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.